It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. You're listening to a cover of the Joe Henderson tune, Afrocentric, which is included in the tracks of a newly released album, Off the Charts, by my guest today, drummer Richard Barada. Barada was a previous guest on this podcast in 2020, where we explored the career of this diversely talented man that went from musician to a highly successful longtime career as a movie producer, back to musician again. His previous two albums, Music and Film, The Real Deal, and Music and Film, The Sequel, focused on cinematic melodies. But on his newest release, Off the Charts, he went in a totally different direction. Well, I, th- I thought it was important to, to showcase a different aspect of my musical knowledge and not rely on something that I had done for 35 years, which was produce movies. And I, I just thought it was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a good way to present something new. There's so much more to me than movies, even though it, there's a 35 years of it, there's also a lot of other things going on. So instead, he chose a different path, mining the catalog of his youth and focusing on the 1960s and 70s. I really researched it where the tunes that I chose were hardly ever recorded or very, very few times they were recorded that I could find. When I was younger and listening to music in my real formative years, when I really started listening to to jazz music, all music, but I was mostly listening to jazz, you know, when people were listening to the Beatles, and I love the Beatles, but, you know, I was listening to Coltrane in 1961. I was 11 years old. So I was listening to Train, and I was listening to Miles, and I was listening to those people. Not too many people were doing that. And then I started playing in a band, and we would try to play some of the easier tunes from that period. Um, And as we got older, we played some of the other ones. But I never thought about recording them. Yeah, those tunes came from an era when I was, I thought music was very exciting back then. I don't know. There was just a, there, there was a great vibe. I grew up during that period, and I and I and I experienced that, and I experienced the music with it. It was it was vibrant for sure. He ended up selecting recordings done by artists like Bobby Hutcherson, Charles Lloyd, McCoy Tyner, Wayne Shorter, John Coltrane, and others, and not the chart busters you would expect, but instead tunes that would leave you with this musical question. Where'd that tune come from? I've never heard that before. What a great tune that is. I want, you know, because it, they haven't heard them. They're the B-side, flip mm-hmm. side. Those are the ones I want because those are the ones that are more fresh. You know, they, they just are. I mean, do you want to play all the things you are anymore? I mean, you've heard it a million times. The crew on this new release includes saxophonist Jerry Berganzi, pianist David Kukoski, John Patitucci on bass, and percussionist Paul Rossman. In this episode, we catch up with Richard Borada and explore his latest album, 
the A-list artists he gathered for this project, and the nine tracks of music worthy of the spotlight for an encore performance. Let's start with the assembly of the personnel that are on this uh, album. It's a little bit different from what you've had in the past from the uh, last two recordings. Tell me how you decided on uh, some of these people that would join you on this journey. Sure. Well, Paul Rossman, he's my cousin, so I'll get in trouble with family if I don't put him on the record. <laughs> Besides the fact that he's real good and he's a truly a great percussionist. You know, I didn't want, just like I wanted to, to deviate from the, the last two recordings in terms of the, the content, the same applied for the musicians. I wanted to go to a different place. I wanted it to be something that was new for me and different. I didn't, wanna, I didn't want to have people say, oh, he's playing with the same people. Does he ever play with anybody else? Also, there was a different personality in the music that I was looking for, uh, not better or worse, just different. So I felt this was the perfect time to get people that also were similar in age to me because I wanted them to have experienced that period of time in history as well, or at least be aware of it, and be great players on many levels, be sensitive players, be hard-driving players, be swinging, of course, but have experienced many different kinds of music. And I mean, I mean, Dave Kukowski on piano, I've played about a dozen gigs with him, and he's played with so many, so many great people. It's intimidating. Mm -hmm. He's played with so many great drummers, my God. You know, so to play with him is always a pleasure, and he can be sensitive, he can be beautiful, and he can swing, he can play hard, he can play in, he can play out. He's the consummate professional. John Patitucci, his name says all, well, besides having worked with Chick and Wayne and, and you name it, I don't have to go through the whole list, besides having worked with those people, he's also, and this may sound weird, but he's also a great player. I mean, he's really a great, some people have played with a lot of people, and I don't know if they're great players or not, but he is a great player, and he's got a beautiful sound and a beautiful feel and you know the, the I can kind of I can feel the bass when I, when he plays and I had never played with him before at all I had heard him and serendipity ran into him at a club and I said I want to get this guy on this recording I think he would be great so we met and we hit it off and you know that was a that was a no-brainer and in terms of saxophone there were a number of saxophonists that I could have chosen but I had heard a couple of recordings with Jerry Berganzi, and I liked his attack. And I wasn't going to use saxophone on every tune. I was only going to use it on half the tunes. And I just felt that his sound, I'm a big Joe Henderson fan. Mm -hmm. So Jerry kind of reminded me of Joe in, in, in many ways. You know, he's not like Joe in many ways as well. But, you know, some of the tunes, and we did play a Joe Henderson tune, and I had never played with him, and that was an attraction as well. So I kind of, I winged it. And everybody went in, having never played together, and having never rehearsed. And uh, we had a Zoom conversation about what we were, how we were going to approach it. And the charts were very well 
you know, written out, and I knew what the arrangements were going to be. You know, they killed it, these guys. I was, look, I was blessed. I was lucky. I was fortunate that they were all available because they were people that I wanted to do it, and they and they did it. So, like Roy Haynes would say, he did it and did it and did it and did it and did it. As the leader on this album, you were comfortable that it wasn't hard uh, or you weren't in awe or you weren't intimidated by these guys. Well, you know, drawing on my prior, could be current too, I'm not completely retired from the film business, but, you know, I've, I've learned from the film business that preparation is the most important thing to success. And you really have to prepare and, 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 and know where you're going in order to get there. So I put a lot of time in the prep period, which was, it wasn't stressful, but there was a lot of work that went into it, a lot of work. And then going over the stuff with the guys, even though we didn't rehearse it, made a big difference. But it's very important. And, and the intimidation and the awe preceded going into the studio. So mm-hmm. I, I shook that all off, you know what I mean? I took a shower, got rid of all of that, and went in there and said, well, you know, I'm just going to play with these guys. I, you know, I can play. I know I can play, and I'm, let's go. I'm ready to go. That's the kind of the attitude I took. Guarded, but loose. When I sat down in preparation for our conversation today, I, I listened to the entire album of Off the Charts, but then what I did the second time around is I played each track and then I played the original that the inspiration or influence came from, and I, I, I was floored. By the time I got through all nine of them, it was like, damn, you really did justice to every single tune in the repertoire. Yeah, I've had some people say to me that they like the version that I did more than the original version. On, I won't say which tunes, on some of the tunes and i i take that as super high praise because i wouldn't have chosen those recordings if i didn't think that they were a-list recordings so um yeah i mean you know recordings were different then than they are now in the quality but the the energy and the 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 way they were played I, i tend to agree humbly i agree so were all the arrangements done by you there was herzog was, you know, during the, during the COVID, I, I played a lot with a, a pianist by the name of Alan Farnham, who was a, a New York guy. He's played a lot, very good pianist. And we would play, you know, all the tunes from the book. You know, I have 200 tunes, songs in, in these books, with bass, piano, saxophones, guitar. And that was one of the tunes that I, I liked to play. And he said, one day we were playing it, and, and he said... Uh, Instead of taking eights, he said the tune isn't laid out that way. He said, you know, take 14 bars, and I'll take eight, and then you take 14, and I'll play eight, and then we'll play three bars, four bars of three, four together. That's the way the tune is laid out.
So we did it, and it sounded great. So he kind of he he arranged that tune. Not that it's a, a major departure from the original, but it's just he arranged that. But all the other ones, they came from my, you know, my thought. Then you also did a tune called Molten Glass, which uh, was, uh, I one, I guess, was influenced by uh, Joe Farrell, who uh, was a flutist, played with Chick Corea, and, and masterfully so, including the Spain recording that he, it, Joe Farrell, was on with uh, Korea. Uh, and it's a beautiful tune. Yeah, it's a great tune. It really, it's on a great album uh, that he did with Dave Holland and Jack DeJanet and John McLaughlin and, and Chick. And I, the, the first song on each side are, are my favorite tunes on the record. But I never heard anybody play that song, ever. And that, again, once again, boy, what a pretty tune. That fell right into the, the category of let's record it. Speaking of beautiful music, Blackberry Winter. Tell us about that one. Well, I was looking for, other than Lost, which has always been one of my favorite tunes, the, the Wayne Shorter tune that's on his Soothsayer record. And, and I, that would have been a session to be at with Freddie Hubbard and, oh, man. and Herbie. And, oh, man, what I wish I was around for that. Uh, and I'm only a stone's throw. I think it was probably recorded. It's less than a mile away from me at uh, Rudy Van Gelder's studio. But other than Lost, I didn't really have a ballad that that I felt wasn't over-recorded. And I was thinking about some tunes to play, and I was playing some Keith Jarrett. And, you know, I heard, I had remembered the tune. And then I heard him play, and I said, that's the tune right there. I mean... That tune is just so beautiful. I just wanted to get my version of it, which is a little different than his because I add a saxophone to it. What a beautiful tune. It's just one you get easily get lost in. Well, how do you how does that song sound bad? Right. You know? 
I mean, some tunes are just great songs. They're just great songs, and you would be hard-pressed to screw them up. So tell me about your doing McCoy Tyner's Paracena. That was on the Expansions record. You know, I, 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 I think I was, I was in college when I first heard that. I mean, I just always loved the tune. I, I love that album. And I, Wayne is haunting on that, on, on the original, the McCoy record. I mean, what he plays, the solo he plays. I mean, I, I'm sure I wore out the grooves on that tune. I, I just loved it. And Freddie Waits and McCoy, they do a nice thing during the end of McCoy's solo. You know, they keep playing like a three against four. And it's hard to figure out when you're supposed to come in. Those two guys obviously knew when to come in and the bass player. And I always remember that on that tune. How did they do that? How did they do that? Because I was, you know, as not nearly as proficient at playing as then as I am now. And uh, it was just always one of my favorite tunes. And McCoy was always one of my favorite piano players. Once again, it was a tune that I really never heard anybody else record. And obviously, again, uh, that this is the the basis for the album that you've produced uh, with uh, Off the Charts. Uh, Another one uh, was, like you had mentioned earlier, you said that you had never really heard Sombrero Sam in a certain way uh, as you had. But then this was modeled possibly after Charles Lloyd's uh, version of it. I heard the original version. I, I was a huge Charles Lloyd fan way back when. And I'm going to tell you an interesting story. When I was in high school, we used to have, we were somewhat progressive, and we were allowed, there was a committee that was formed to bring uh, bands in like once a semester to the school. And, and, and we'd have different, you know, bands that, that were touring bands. And I remember my senior year, which was 68, 69, I was the president of the class and I was on that committee. And the first semester, we brought uh, Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, Mm. Wooly Bully. So he came in and that was fun. They played that tune about three or four times during the course of the night. Then the second semester, believe it or not, uh, a, a close friend of mine, a saxophonist, uh, we, we played a lot together in high school. We had a band together. And I were talking about it because he was on the committee. And we, that we were going to bring Charles Lloyd to come and play in the high school. This isn't it Poughkeepsie. And uh, we hired Charles Lloyd to come in 1968, I think, 69. Wow. And he came up. And I don't know who was in the band. I don't think Jack was in the band. I don't think Keith was in the band then. I don't quite remember who was in the band. Maybe Sunship was in the band. He was the drummer, Thaddeus. And, um, I mean, I, we loved it. I mean, you know, to have Charles Lloyd at your high school? I mean, please. So <laughs> I knew that tune. I used to listen to uh, 
Dreamweaver and Autumn Leaves, which they play. I was a huge Jack DeJohnette fan back then. Later on, I, I studied with Jack. So I always loved that tune. And uh, the, the idea of recording it, I said, well, I want to record a couple of tunes that have a rock feel or a Latin rock feel. So uh, the impetus behind that was just that, you know, I dug the tune. I just thought it was, I just thought it was a lot of fun. And I, what, I re, what I really like about that tune, which maybe a lot of people don't, being a, being a drummer, percussionist, I love the way that Charles Lloyd's playing maracas, and there's a clave in there and a cowbell in there behind it. So there's some rhythm, there's some, you know, funky rhythm going on behind that whole recording. And then he recorded it live, and I think he recorded it on different records as well. So uh, it wasn't hard for me to choose a Charles Lloyd tune. Speaking yeah. of Charles Lloyd, I, I think he's the only one of the composers of all the music that you played on this album that's still alive. Everyone else is no longer with us. I know, I know. That's uh, true and sad at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yep, he's the last remaining survivor. You might find this surprising, and, and I think uh, one of your band members will be flattered by this, but I would say that I listened to John Coltrane's Out of This World, and then I heard your version again, and I thought, Jerry has got this down. I mean, he, he's like in the pocket. I mean, he just it was amazing. Yeah. Oh, he'll be glad to hear that. Yeah, he, he nailed that. That's one of the reasons that I wanted him. I, I like his attack. On, and, you know, that's one of my favorite tunes of all time. That record would be, you know, you know you, the, the, the question that you hear, if you were on a deserted island, what five records or three records would you bring with you? You know, that, that's, that's certainly one of them. I, I, that record, I listened to that record. And that, that song is also on my music and film, the sequel, it's on it, a whole different version of it. And Bill O'Connell did a great arrangement of that tune. And I love that version, but I wanted the purity of the, the original Coltrane. And Coltrane didn't write that tune. That came from a, it came from a movie. And uh, yeah. certainly Coltrane brings it, but the way Jerry plays it on here, it's, 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 it's pure magic.
Well, I'm going to relay that message to Jerry because I'm sure he would love to hear it. A Chick Corea classic, Tones for Jones Bones, uh, one of the uh, last tunes uh, on the album that we haven't touched on. Yeah. What was the inspiration for that, besides Korea's version of it? Well, Patatucci, Korea, there's one. Mm-hmm. Dave Kikowski is a huge Chick Corea fan, and you can hear Chick in his playing as well, besides everything else that he does. And it's one of my favorite tunes. And that tune, that was that was the most highly debated between myself and my other self on whether it was going to make the record because it has been recorded. It has been heard. And I think probably more than any other tune, that might be the one that's the most recognizable. But I just felt that it's such an incredibly great song and Patitucci's association with Chick It was a, just a, a tune that I, I wanted to play. I, I love playing the tune live sometimes when I play trio. And it's interesting, but John Patitucci told me that he never, ever played that tune with Chick. Not once did they ever play that tune. That's amazing. He said he never played that tune. And I remember hearing that tune. Boss, bo- It's on the Boss Horn record, Blue Mitchell, which I have in my record collection. I think that's the first recording of it. And then it's on the the chick record, you know, and then, you know, that's the, the one with Joe Farrell again and Joe Chambers. And that's a that's a great recording of it, too. Anyway, it was just another tune that I felt I just wanted to put on. It needed to be heard again by a lot of the younger people that are listening to, to jazz music or, or at least are somewhat closely associated with that type of music listening wise that they needed to hear it. Good. Not to say that it, my record... Like we call it a record, my album, my recording is going to be heard by a lot of people. But I certainly hope that is heard by a lot of people because I think a lot of people can learn just something about the music by listening to the tunes that are on that record because there's a history there. That's for that reason, too. What's your, what's your overall sense or feeling about this album? I'm very proud of it. The genesis of it. And the process from start to finish was basically inspired and and worked through by me, okay? So I had a lot to do with it, okay? I'm I'm proud of that aspect. I'm in awe of being able to play with the musicians that I played with 
because being away from the music for so long, even though, you know, you don't want to say you're intimidated by anybody or, you know, let's be honest, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like a, a newcomer, although, you know, I'm back again and to play with these people that have so inspired me and, and who I looked up to when I used to be making movies and go out to the clubs and listen to music. I would see these guys play, and I'd say, man, they're great. Boy, they're great. Never thinking that at some later point down the road, I was going to reinvent myself again and get the opportunity to play with them. So I'm, I'm very proud of being able to accomplish that as well. And then people, a lot of people have told me, like yourself, that they really like the music on it. They really do. And a lot of people told me, on another level, from an art level, they really like the cover. Who designed you know, that? Her name is on the back of the record. Covered graphic designed by Irem, I-R-E-M, Ella, E-L-A, and then the last name is Y-I-L-D-I-Z-E-L-I. She probably deserves a nod for that because... It's it's a great cover. It really is. A lot of thought went into that. We didn't know what the, it was going to be off the charts, the flip side, almost famous, you know, many different things. In listening to your music the last few outings, there seems to be a pattern going on here that uh, when you start to do things that people around you win Grammys. Uh, do, you, do you smell one coming uh, off of this recording? And if not, who, why shouldn't it be you? From your lips to God's ears. Um, <laughs> uh, well, listen, we, we hit lightning in a bottle with chopsticks on the first music and film. Who would have thunk it? And we have submitted some arrangements, song, and the record for this year's Grammys coming up. But you can't win it if you're not in it. And I think the music is, is good enough to at least qualify for being considered as good music. Whatever that means after that, I'd be on cloud 10 if anything like that happened. And, uh, you know, I don't expect it, but wouldn't it be nice? Well, winning isn't everything. It's like being nominated for something. So you don't win, all right, but hell, you got you got recognized and you were nominated. Yeah, to be nominated is to win, as far as I'm concerned. Look, and I'm, I'm living the dream right now. I'm playing the music that I love, and I love a lot of different kinds of music, and I'm, and I'm playing it, and I'm playing with great musicians, and I'm meeting great people, and I just hope that, you know, that I stay healthy, and I am healthy, and, and that I have the opportunity to continue to play more gigs and better gigs and festivals and my name and, and my name recognition becomes something that allows me to do that. Not because I want people to know who I am, but because who I am allows me to go out and play the music that I love and do what I love. So now what happens with Richard Morata? Are you really going to start taking this more seriously and get on the road, do more recordings, or are you going back to the daytime job? Well, I don't know how much more seriously I could take it because I take it very seriously. And I would love to be out on the road and I would love to be playing. And it's, it's not easy. 
it's not easy. Like I said, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a neophyte here. And, and I've had a number, a couple of different agents and management companies that have come and gone uh, just by virtue of them not being able to sustain themselves. And, you know, I've got to hook up with the right person in order to, to take that next step as a touring person or as a person that goes to a broader audience. So uh, I'm, as, I'm as serious as a heart attack, as they say. So I'm down for all of that. In terms of going back to my day job, which is making movies, and a lot of times we work at night. So it's a day job and a night job. I I don't know. Right at the moment, I don't have the any interest in doing that. You can't serve two masters, and this this is hard enough to do. Making a movie on top of this would be difficult. But my son makes made his first feature film last August, and I it was only a month long, and I produced that along with my daughter, who's also in the film business, and um, that's going to be going out to some festivals. I hope it gets accepted. It's, it's a pretty good movie. He wrote and directed it. So if my kids continue to make movies, I will probably most certainly be involved in, in their, their endeavors. But in terms of other ones, at the moment, I just, don't see, I just don't see it happening. Not that I didn't love it. I did love it. I mm-hmm. loved being around the people, and I loved seeing the process of a movie being made and dealing with so many aspects of, 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 of movie making, you know, music included and dealing with directors like Marty Scorsese and Mike Nichols and, and Woody Allen and, you know, just great visionaries. But this is my vision right now. So I, I'm here right now. And you are the real deal. Well, thank you. In our book, uh, we, we would uh, list you that. And, and I will also, uh, as always, ask for the sake of our listeners that are saying, you know what, this is a fascinating guy. So how can I learn more about him? Well, you can go to my website, which is richardbarada.com. Or you can just Google me. And there are interviews that I did about movies and interviews I've done about music. And there's a whole list and catalog of things that you can get online if you want to explore who I am. Videos, you can, uh, music videos, uh, a lot of things. You know, I don't know how fascinating it is, but I know that there's, I've been truly blessed to be able to be around these very creative people and, and have a quote-unquote successful life. So if people are interested in that, then uh, yeah, please, please check it out. And another reason I don't think I could go back to movies right now is because I'm playing golf a couple of times a week and I'm starting to break 80 every once in a while. So now, now I'm starting to really enjoy the golf. Oh, geez. What's next? <laughs> so. I don't know. Bring it on. Whatever it is, let's bring it on. Well, good luck on the golf game, and uh, we wish you all the best with everything that comes your way that makes you happy. Well, that's very nice. That's uh, that's very nice of you to say, and I try not to get greedy with that. So I'll just take the few things that make me happy and move on. And thank you once again for being our guest on All That's Jazz. And, and thank you for doing this as well. It's a service, and we, we as musicians and artists, appreciate it so continued success 
Banks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with drummer and band leader Richard Barada. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.